do you know what time it is? It's Supernatural Story Time. And if you're easily scared, and even if you're not, there's only one thing left to do. Just turn off the lights, because these are stories that you listen to only in the dark. True and Terrifying Stories, Volume 4. Story number one. My husband had some friends in college who were a family of missionaries. Mom and dad had been missionaries had come back to the States on furlough so that they could be near their son and daughter while they went to college. They had often had spiritual warfare type experiences. They lived out in the boonies in Virginia and their driveway was about 100 yards long, twisty, curvy, and lots of trees. Where the driveway met the road, there was a convenience store. One night, the daughter was on her way out in her VW bug. She left the house, and about 30 minutes later, they received a phone call from the convenience store at the end of the driveway. It was a daughter, and she was crying hysterically. She had been driving down the driveway in the dark when she looked in her rearview mirror and saw gleaming red eyes in the back seat. Then she felt something pull her car backwards as she was trying to drive forward. We don't know much about what happened in the 30 minutes or so between the time she left the house and when she made the phone call because she won't talk about it. What we do know is that when her family found the VW bug, it was wedged in between two trees, one tree at the front, one at the back. There were no marks in the ground that would have been made if someone had driven or pushed the VW. They had to bring in some heavy equipment to get the car out. Story number two. The weirdest thing I've ever seen was about 25 years ago when I was plowing in this field which was far away from the nearest town and way off the road. It was in the middle of the afternoon when I noticed a patch of blackberries while making a turn at the end of the long rows. Since I was in a hurry and trying to finish before dark, I hadn't stopped for lunch and these blackberries were looking like steak to me. So I hurriedly climbed down from the tractor and grabbed a handful and then continued back to the other side of the field. The next round, heading back to the same end of the field, the blackberries were on. I noticed someone else picking berries. The closer I got, I began to see that it was a woman in a dress with a back towards me. Not just any woman. She was wearing an old blue hoop-like dress with a white apron over it and a huge bonnet on her head like someone would have worn in the 1800s. I remember thinking how odd it was that someone would be that far off the road picking blackberries let alone dress that way. When I got within 30 feet or so from her, she turned and looked at me, and I swear, her face looked like it was made out of burlap sack, like the old potato sacks, and she had two big black buttons for eyes and straight reddish-orange line for a mouth. It scared me so bad that I changed to the highest gear the tractor had and crossed back to the other side of the field wide open. Halfway back to the shop, where I was heading to let someone know what I had just seen. Then I met my boss in the road and told him what I saw. He laughed and told me that I was silly and said that he would park by the blackberries until I finished. I did go back and finish plowing and never saw her again. I told my mother about it and she said it was probably the devil I saw, being the wild teenager lifestyle that I was living at the time. I told my uncle what I had seen, who had always told his kids these crazy ghost stories, and he told this man years later what I had seen. Well, just two years ago, I ran into this old timer who asked me if there was any truth in what my uncle had told him, 
since my uncle is known to stretch the truth. I told him what I saw, and he said chills ran all over him because when he was a little boy, he and his friends would walk down that dirt road where this happened, and that there used to be an old log house where an old woman lived, dressed as I described, the blue dress, the bonnet, and the apron, and she was the meanest old woman who would chase him away from her blackberries with a pair of large shears. The old man could barely talk. When I confirmed that my uncle had told him, he said that there was no way someone could have been playing a prank on me because there's not too many people who are still living that knew about her. I really don't believe in ghosts, but if I had to say that I saw one, this would be the one. Next story. I grew up in a Celtic Scottish family, although I am the only one in my family born in Canada that remains very spiritual to this very day. I'd never had anything confirmed, but had some odd experiences until last year. I was at my mother-in-law's ranch in rural Alberta back in 2000. They're a huge family. My mother-in-law is the youngest of 13, so it was not uncommon for family and friends to just stop by unannounced for a visit. I knew that there were only five of us there at the time and no children. It was summertime during the day, mid-afternoon, and I was sitting on the front step having a smoke. God, I miss smoking sometimes. Beside the front step was a door into the attached garage. The door swung open to the left, and on the right side of the door was a workbench along the wall. I had a feeling that there was someone there watching me, so I looked out of the corner of my eye and turned my head. I saw a cute little girl, about five or six years of age, at the corner of the workbench, with her two hands on the corner, looking at me and smiling at me. I remembered her so vividly. She had sandy blonde hair, wavy to curly, with a pigtail on either side, was dressed nicely in a cute little summer dress, like she was going to a wedding or church, something like that. I thought, oh, we have some visitors, but I didn't hear a vehicle come in the long driveway. I turned to put my smoke out and looked back and she was gone. I thought, that was weird. I went in and told my wife and mother-in-law that I think some company was here. She asked who it was and went to the door. No one was there and the nearest neighbors are miles away. I told them what I saw and they didn't think much of it. My mother-in-law did not say too much after that as she thought it would scare my young brother-in-laws who had just returned to live in the country. It wasn't until a few years later that during a discussion this experience came up again. My mother-in-law told us of a young girl about five or six that about 20 years ago was tragically shot and killed by accident by her not much older brother. This gave me goosebumps and made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I called my mother right away and filled her in on the other details. She said she was not surprised. As mentioned, I remembered vividly the details to this day. I have a special place in my heart for little girls. I am now the proud father of one of my own. I take solace in the memory that her spirit seems so happy given her tragic death. Next story. Well, I was out on a trip out west in the 2000. I was driving to Highway 666, a real highway in Colorado. I looked over on the side of the road. There was a house, and standing in their yard was something. I can't really describe it. At first, I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. I had been hiking on and off for four days before, so I was kind of tired. I locked my eyes on it, and I had this feeling it was looking back. 
It had the appearance of an animal that was frozen in place so as not to be seen. But I could see it. I kept going but thinking, what the heck was that? It took me a mile down the road before I could turn around. I pulled my camera out of the back of the car. This was the one time I didn't have it next to me. When I got back to the house, the thing is gone. That is what freaked me out. Because I thought it was just a lawn decoration or something, but it was gone. It looked big from the road like bear size. But it can be hard to judge size and distance out there because of the flat terrain. It had kind of a wolf-like look, but hard to say. It looked like some of the things that you would see on petroglyphs on the rocks in the area. To this day, I wonder if it was a skinwalker or some other Navajo legend. The same trip, I was in Utah, in the Four Corners region. I stopped at a small park. I'm the only car there. I looked at the register. The last entry was two days earlier. I started walking up one of the trails. I got this creepy feeling, like something isn't right. I just turned around, got back in the car, and back on the road. Can't explain it. I just felt like I had to get out of there. This was before driving down Highway 666. If you want remote, that is the place to be. Next story. When I was about 26, my best friend and her then-boyfriend decided to go out for some drinking and dancing. We hadn't been there more than an hour when I started getting this uncomfortable feeling. I'd look around me, move to a new area, but it wouldn't pass. After doing this several times, I was checking out two guys in particular that seemed to be around when I would start looking. I went back to where my friends were, and we talked and laughed about how funny some of the people dancing were, and I started to feel better. Not long after that, I went to the bathroom and was headed back to the bar for a drink when I meet one of the guys face-to-face in a hallway that leads to the bathrooms. Not a bad-looking guy. I mean, he was average, but something was all wrong about him. He just looked at me, and the hair in the back of my neck was standing up. I didn't stay long and literally pushed him out of my way and nearly ran to the table. I told my best friend about what was happening and that I knew it was just nuts, but this guy really scared the crap out of me. I was definitely done having fun for the night. We packed up and left. Two days later, both this guy and the other guy I had my eye on were caught after leaving one woman for dead with her throat cut and after hours of torture, rape, and beating. This poor woman crawled out of what they thought was her grave to a road and flagged down a passing truck. They found the body of the first woman they killed, and it came to light that these guys were doing their prowling at the club we had been at. What they did to these two women was shocking and sickening, and I have little doubt that had I been alone that night, I might have been girl number two. That experience is actually what started changing me. Up until then, I guess I was like the most of the rest of humanity, in thinking those things only happen to other people. I have never harbored that illusion since then. I agree with some of you, which say the predators on two feet are much scarier than the four-legged kind. Next story. It was the fall of 1994, and my scout group decided we would do a little cabin camping up in the Appalachians in western Virginia. One of our scoutmasters, happened to be a member of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club, and they owned and maintained a bunch of property all about the mountain areas. Needless to say, this wasn't the first time we had been to one of these cabins. However, this was the first time we had been to this particular one. It's situated off a mountain road 
your standards, Will. We arrived late Friday evening, the sun just dipping below the horizon, the autumn air chilling us as we hiked up to the Omnis building. We were a group of about 15 young Boy Scouts, me included, and three adult chaperones. Of course, being kids and Boy Scouts, we were not very quiet in our entrance. There was a lot of yelling and screaming, your typical prepubescent horsing around, dropped off our stuff and got a huge bonfire going in the field in front of the cabin and started dinner. It was your typical everyday campout, at least until one of our leaders asked a few of us to go seek out the springs for some fresh water. That's when things started to get a little hairy. The spring is located in the woods, a few dozen yards from the cabin. Being dark, we had to find the sign that directed us to it. Three of us decided to go and look for it while the rest got their tinfoil dinners going. It was me, my best friend, and a younger kid who I'll call Jake for this story. I didn't know Jake very well, nor did my friend. We all had our flashlights out and started looking for the sign. We found it pretty quick and headed into the dark woods. We got in pretty far, listening for the sound of flowing water but hearing nothing. The sounds of the other boys were gone. We couldn't even see the bonfire anymore. It dawned on all of us. All of a sudden, that was deathly quiet. And aside from our flashlight, it was very dark. Of course, we were all kids. And we started to freak ourselves out just by thinking about it. Jake then stumbled onto the shallow spring and called us over to him. We forgot about the darkness and started to fill our jugs. Then, like everyone else before me said, we felt that feeling of dread come over us. That feeling that something was watching you and that your skin had a mind of its own and wanted to crawl off you and hide. The hair on my arms started to stand on ends and I looked up at my buddy Chuck and he had this look as if he was feeling the exact same thing. We both turned to Jake and he was looking ahead, straight at the woods, his eyes fixed on something. I flashed my lights at him and he wouldn't budge. I looked towards the general direction of where he was staring. What I saw still frightens me to this day. It was a silhouette of a man, or what looked like a man, hunched over. His eyes reflected our lights and gave off that strange red reflection like a deer caught in your headlights. Without so much of a thought, I got up and took off in the opposite direction. My buddy Chuck was not far behind me. I screamed at the top of my lungs, running as fast as my little legs could carry me. I dropped my light, but I didn't care. I kept going. It seemed like forever that I was running until I tripped over myself and fell into a pile of leaves. My mind caught up to me. It was then I realized that I was lost. I crawled over to a tree and then saw Chuck blaze by it. I called out to him. He stopped dead in his tracks and ran back over to where I was standing. Jake was nowhere to be found. We tried to get reoriented. We listened for a group. Not a sound was heard. Then we heard the most blood-curdling scream I've ever heard. It was Jake. Chuck and I both looked at each other and ran toward the sound. We heard the others calling for us. We ran towards them. It seemed like an eternity before we found our group. We told them what had happened, and they immediately went towards the spring. No sign of Jake. I pointed out where I saw the man, and we walked over. On the ground was a torn part of Jake's shirt. At this point, one of the leaders decided it was a good idea for us to split up. One half continued to search for Jake and the other head back into town and get the police. 
We spent half the night looking for him. Nothing. When we returned to the cabin, the other group was waiting for us. We found out that the tires to our vehicles were blown out. There was no leaving tonight. This was pre-cell phones, so we had no other choice than to bunk up for the morning. We all hunkered down for a long evening. No one slept. We thought about Jake. Throughout the night, we could hear strange noises outside. No one was brave enough to look outside. Some of the younger boys were crying. We had no weapons. We had an axe, but that was pretty much it. It was the longest night of our lives. The next morning, as the sun started to peak above the tree line, we looked outside. Standing there in the meadow was a half-naked Jake. The adults ran out of the cabin to grab him. They brought him into the cabin and he stood there emotionless, not a single peep or anything. He was pale, lifeless. He had scratches on his back and arms as if an animal had dragged him through the woods. The weirdest thing I remember was that they looked like they were burnt into his skin. A group of the guys hiked down to the town and called the police. We got a tow truck to come get the vehicles. Our weekend was spent in the sheriff's office being interviewed about what happened. After that incident, we were forbidden to go to any of the PATC facilities ever again. Jake disappeared with his family. I never knew what happened to them. To this day, I will not sit foot alone, unarmed, in the dark, in the backwoods of Appalachia. Never. Next story. It was sometime around 1976 or so, during the week of the Thanksgiving holiday. Me, my dad, and his friend Leo were deer hunting. I would have been about 12 or 13 years old at the time. We were in a very remote area of Osage County, Oklahoma, north of Pahaska, the Oklahoma town my dad was from. We were camping in an overhead camper and were set up near Rock Creek, way back off the highway on private land. This particular morning, I decided not to go out for reasons I don't remember. After Dad and Leo left in the early darkness, I crawled up on the overhead bunk because it was warmer up there. As I was dozing shortly after sunup, I began to hear footsteps faintly off in the trees. The leaves were all on the ground this time of year, and I could make out the crunch, crunch, crunch of someone walking. It kept getting louder and closer. The steps were very rhythmic, like a person walking, not a step or two, and then a step or two, like an animal would make, so I assumed it was Dad or Leo coming back to camp. I figured they had a deer down and were coming to put me to work, so I began to get around. As I was about to climb down out of the bunk, the footsteps were very loud and then went silent, which meant they had stepped out of the forest and onto the rock shelf where we had set up camp. I leaned around to the window and looked out to see who it was and nearly crap my fruit of the looms. About 60 feet away from the camper, walking past camp at an angle between camp and the creek was this huge man that looked to be dressed all in dark clothes. He was making steady strides down towards the creek and seemed indifferent to the camp. I watched this man as he covered a huge amount of distance in a very short time. Before I knew it, he was completely out of sight. Once he hit the forest on the other side of the creek, I could once again hear the steady rhythm of leaves crunching under his steps. They slowly got quieter and quieter until I could no longer hear them. Now the direction he was going was deeper into the blackjack forest as the only road in and out for miles was the one right beside our camp. 
I was frozen in fear and disbelief for a few minutes, but finally was able to get around and get moving. As I mulled this over my mind, I tried to convince myself that it was Leo because Leo's cold weather gear was a black snowmobile suit. I couldn't explain it to myself why the man was not wearing orange during deer rifle season, as I knew neither Dad or Leo would do something that stupid. Finally, I worked up the guts to go outside the camper, permanently joined my model 943030, and stoked the fire. Later, when Dad and Leo came in for breakfast, I casually inquired if they had done any walking around at all. They both replied no, that they had gone to their stands and stayed there until returning to camp. I began to theorize that they were screwing with me until I noticed Leo's snowmobile suit had reflective piping running down the seams of the arms and legs. I didn't say a word until years later, when I was an adult. Dad and I were sitting around a deer campfire a long way away from Osage County. I recounted the tale and he just looked at me out and said nothing. Time has faded those years and the memories, but I can still feel the shock and fear I felt when I first saw him outside the camper. I can feel it like it was this morning. We went back there many times during my youth, but never had another encounter. Next story. My story happened back in the early 90s when I was in college. Me and some of my friends got into playing with a Ouija board. They'd been doing it for several weeks and had many contacts with spirits. I was skeptical about the whole thing and figured someone was pushing the thing around the board. One girl was particularly into it and the board seemed more active when she was around. I often thought she was pushing it even if it was subconsciously. Some of my friends felt the same way but she was good looking so we went with it. What can I say? One night, we were really into it and got the great idea to go do it in a cemetery. I really don't get scared by much, so I agreed. I led the way in my car and really didn't know where I was going. We went up in the mountains and drove until I found a cemetery with a light so we could see what was going on. We all got out. There were six or seven of us in two vehicles. Well, we gathered around and four people got on the board. Not the girl because she didn't want us to think she was moving it around. She did ask the question though because, like I said, she seemed to get a contact all the time. Well, it didn't take long and she was talking to a spirit. Asking the basic questions, I, for some reason, was just walking and looking around at the same time, listening to what was going on. Well, she asked the name of the spirit and of course it was taking time to spell out. When they were finished, she said the name and asked if that was right, and the cursor went to yes. As she said the name, I looked at the headstone I was standing by. I said, did you say so-and-so? And they said yes. And my hair stood up and, and I went cold. That's the name on this headstone. A couple of guys thought that I was messing with them, so they looked. Everyone freaked when they found out I wasn't lying. And we bolted for the cars and got the hell out of there. I know everyone is a skeptic when it comes to the Ouija board, but there is no way it could have been faked since I was standing right next to that headstone. Next story. Years ago, in a fairly remote area of northern Ontario, a gun club friend, his sister, whom I knew well, a woman friend of hers from university, and I 
drove to the last significant town in the area from Toronto. The woman friend was a purchasing officer for a college, and the college was looking to purchasing a remote wilderness track to be the outdoor school for the college. She had asked my friend's sister to accompany her since the location was remote, and she then invited her brother and I. The plan was to stay in a modern large log home on the property overnight and explore the property on foot. When we found the right dirt approach road, it had an old heavy padlock iron gate set in heavy stone to either side of the road. A realtor had given the purchasing officer the key, so we opened the gate, drove in, and secured it behind us. Two miles in, we found the cabin, a large four-bedroom affair built by a wealthy developer who never lived there but put it on the market as soon as it was completed. Once we were there and had unloaded our packs into the cabin, it was then that the purchaser told us why she wanted the company. The first cabin built there had burnt down, and the second attempt, a decade before, had seen the workers quit for strange reasons that included being stoned with heavy rocks many times, the assailants never being seen. This latest cabin was the third attempt. So far, no one had actually lived on the property. According to the maps, the nearest home in the area was more than 20 miles away. We had enough daylight that we decided to do a first pass at the right area. We had no firearms with us, but everyone except the purchasing agent had very impressive belt knives and machetes, and we knew how to use both. Two miles later, through some pretty dense woods, we had reached the edge of the small river on the property and stopped to glass the river with binoculars. My friend and I commented on the feeling of unease and not hearing any animals or bird sounds at all. The purchasing lady excused herself to go behind some trees. After a few minutes, we heard her say, There are blankets in here. The three of us looked at each other, confused, and moved forward to see what she could be looking at. There was a low earthen mound, about 15 feet in diameter, maybe 5 feet high, right in the bush, and with vegetation growing all over the mound. Perfect natural camouflage. It had clearly been there a very long time. Until you got at the right angle, you couldn't see the crude wooden slat door held in place by leather thongs. The purchaser was looking inside when the full situation hit us. My friend and his sister and I all said something like, back out now. And she did, realizing she had just entered someone's home, uninvited. She backed out towards us and I felt the sister of my friend grip my arm. This lady was as tall as me, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, and never backed off anything. When her fingernails dug in, I knew we had a real problem. Her only words, said just loud enough for her brother and I to hear, were, We are surrounded. Never good words. But I was looking for people and couldn't see any. My friend was the same. But all three of us had taken good grips on our machetes and put our backs together. Where? I asked quietly. She jerked her head around and said, The mounds. There are several of them. My blood literally felt like it had gone to ice water. Then we could see that we were almost in the middle of a group of about half a dozen similar earthen mounds oriented on the river. My friend gave an uncharacteristic, oh my. My friend's sister took point 
and took purchasing lady in tow. My friend and I were right in trail behind them, and I think we set a personal best record for running through dense bush, and safety be damned, we ran with drama machetes and combat knives. We reached the cabin, and the shortest vote in history decided we were driving out even though the sun was setting. We tossed our packs in the vehicle, and my friend called me quietly and showed me a crudely written sign on heavily weathered plywood that had been leaned against the side of the vehicle. All it said was, go. We did. I was told that the recommendation for the college was to look elsewhere for an outdoor school. Sounded like a plan to me. Next story. This took place around 2000. After training at my dojo for about a year, I found myself looking for a new place to live. I had become very close to my shihan, or master instructor and his wife, and it was summertime when martial arts schools are at their slowest. It was decided that the answer to my housing needs and a way to generate a little more money for the dojo was a small loft in the back of the school. Our school from the outside looks like most that you find all over the place. Looking in the windows, you see a 15 by 30 area with thick foam mats on the ground. A small shop area mirrors covering one long wall. In the back is one of the minor things that sets this dojo apart from the others. Through a small hallway, you reach our back area. It's approximately 25 by 80 feet, with 90% of that area padded and set up as our main workout area. Just above the entrance to this area is the loft. It's open to the main area with banners giving privacy to the loft. Very convenient to me as I was teaching private lessons after work and before classes in the evening. I've been living there for about four months when late one early October night, I was settling down for sleep. It was about 1.30 in the morning or so, when from the middle of the workout floor, I heard a loud smack. Now, I know that buildings can make some strange noises at times, but after four years in the martial arts, I was very familiar with the sound of a roundhouse kick hitting one of the large square shield pads that we used in training, which is exactly what this sounded like. I waited for about 20 seconds or so before deciding that what I heard was actually someone closing a door hard in the fireplace business next door when I heard two smacks in rapid succession. My hair went on end as it sounded exactly like one of our advanced students or another black belt performing a low high flip kick on those same shield pads. Prior to going to bed, I had already locked all the doors and searched the place to ensure that nobody was lingering around, hoping to steal some of the expensive swords or other weapons that we have in our shop area. I got out of bed, moved one of the banners aside, and looked out on the dojo floor. It was empty. Once again, I told myself, the buildings can make some strange noises. They come from the pipes or the foundation settling, from the walls or the ceiling. These noises had come from the direct center of our workout area. While I was looking around to see if Shihan or one of the other black belts with a key are messing with me, the sounds of someone working out begin to come from the center of the room again. I flipped on the lights and the noise stops. I went out into the dojo floor and looked for a small speaker that might have been placed there without me noticing. Nothing but gray, double-padded carpet. I went back up to bed and tried to fall asleep. 
pretending that I'm not hearing the sounds of someone having a workout that resumed just after I turned out the lights and continued on for half an hour. Now, if this had been the end of it, I could have blamed the pizza that I had eaten earlier that night for giving me bad dreams. The same events happened on three out of the next five nights. Preparing myself for ridicule, I described the events as they had happened to my Shihan. After finishing with a thoughtful look on his face, he says, I wonder if it could be Matt. I asked him what he meant, and he proceeded to tell me a story. About three years prior to my coming to the dojo, my instructor had a student named Matt. I can't remember Matt's last name, but he and Shihan had become very good friends despite the 20-year difference in age. It was around Halloween when Matt and several of Shihan's young black belts were out having fun and being stupid, as teenagers often are. They were taking turns riding on the hood of a jeep that one of them owned. When Matt was riding on the hood, they had to stop very suddenly for something. Matt flew off and took the corner of the curb directly on his neck. He died instantly. After telling me the story, Shihan said that the two of them were so close that if there was any way Matt could come back, he probably would try. Over the course of the next three weeks, Shihan and at least four other black belts also experienced disturbances in the main dojo area. One night, Shihan, myself, and another black belt were in late making a few new discs for the cardio kickboxing classes that we also held there. While we were facing the stereo, we heard the sound of a strong kick connecting with the pad coming from behind us. It should be noted that this came from well away from where the pads are actually kept. Shihan said, Hi Matt. Immediately, the other black belt and I watched as Shihan broke out in goosebumps from head to toe. He shuddered and commanded loudly, Get off me, Matt. The goosebumps went away like turning off the lights. He stated that he felt Matt put his hands on my instructor's shoulders. About a week later, I was in the front of the school by the shop area cleaning up after the night's classes. At the end of each night, chores were assigned to the students, things like cleaning the mirrors, taking out the trash, and vacuuming. I was vacuuming while several other students were cleaning the mirrors. Xian's wife was doing some accounting behind the counter, and two of our black belts were still in the main dojo in the back. They had a bit of a romantic relationship, so we were giving them some room. Suddenly, we heard a loud shriek from the dojo, and Jamie comes sprinting into the room, followed by Sensei Jeff, who was one of Shihan's main assistants. Jeff was looking quite pale and trying to grin as if to keep from grimacing. We asked what happened, and he stated that he and Jamie had been seated at the far end of the dojo, where we have five to six heavy Everlast punching bags suspended from the ceiling. They had their backs to the bags to keep an eye for anyone entering the dojo while they smooched a bit. While they were sitting there, they heard one of the bags get hit and turned to find one of them swinging as if it had just been hit. The final and possibly the most significant of the events that happened before they went away for a while happened in late November. It was around or a little past midnight and after watching a movie with my girlfriend at the mall across the parking lot, I stopped in to do a security check and used the bathroom. I told Angie about Matt and the events that we had all experienced, but she never seemed to think much of it. 
After checking the lock on the back door behind the heavy bags, I walked to the front of the school where she was waiting in one of the chairs by the front counter. I wanted to use the bathroom, and when I came out, Angie was quite pale. Adam, what does Matt look like? She asked. I took her to the small area that separated the front area from the main dojo where a picture of Matt hung on the wall. After taking one look at the picture, she took off running and leaped into the car outside. I went to the car and asked her what was wrong. She told me that while I was in the bathroom, she saw Matt standing in the opening from the front area to the main dojo. She had been looking at the long line of pictures of the school's black belts that was located over the mirrors in the front area. While looking at them, she saw Matt in the mirror. Matt looked at her, smiled, and gave her a little nod and walked back into the dojo. After that time, she vehemently refused to enter the school after dark unless there were several people present. That was the last large experience that I am aware of happening in the school. Matt had died on Halloween, and with that season passing, Matt seemed to move on to places unknown. But starting about four months later, every now and then someone who was in the school late at night would say that they could hear pads being hit in the dojo when they knew no one was there. Now, whenever I'm there late at night, closing up before I leave, I'll usually call out to Matt, making sure that he's keeping good form and watching over the school. Some people may tell you there's no such thing as ghosts or spirits, but there are those of us who know better.